0: Please, in your Bible or use the pew Bible, to follow as I read from Second Peter, small book, close to the end of the New Testament, just before the Epistles of John. Second Peter, chapter three. I've been studying Peter's letters now for quite a few months. Well, one more week, I desire to have to finish this third chapter next week, Lord willing. But I'm going to read beginning at verse 8 through verse 13 and ask you to follow. Here is the revelation of God by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter. He writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Since all these things This is God's holy word. The poet Robert Frost is a favorite of mine. I'm not someone who studies poetry a lot, but I don't think we've had a greater poet since Robert Frost's passing about 50 or more years ago. He wrote a short poem on the, his view of the end of the world. It's actually humorous. He has his tongue-in-cheek. If you don't realize that, when he wrote these words Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I have tasted of desire, I hold for those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough to say that for destruction, ice is nice and would suffice. A non theologian's comment on 2 Peter 3. Hard as it is to believe, the Bible says the physical world that we know today is going to be replaced by a renovated creation from God. In a move of power and wonder far greater than you'll behold on any home remodeling show, God is going to remodel his creation. He's going to purge it. Purge it the way Gold is purified in a metallurgist's crucible. And planet Earth in its present appearance and the surrounding atmosphere, God made out of nothing, we believe, long ago. He's going to remake it. His goal is cleansing and transformation, restoration, so that that which he originally created will be free from all the spoilage of man and once more glorious. The last time Second Peter dealt with what we saw was the issue of the apparent delay. We say apparent delay of Christ's return, which is not, of course, a real delay at all. It is due to God's extended mercy for those whom he intends to save, we were told here. And now we have rather blunt sort of amazing statements that are almost unprecedented in the rest of the New Testament about wonders of things that are going to happen to the creation on this day that is called the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, this final appearing of Jesus Christ. I used to read once in a while or in my early Sunday school days we'd come across 2 Peter somehow or I'd be reading it and I would read this about the elements melting and things dissolving, and I would, I'd be terrified. I would think, well, this is awful. What terrible news. God is going to burn up the creation. Where are we going to be was the big question I always had of how in the world are we going to endure that? Well, I'll try to deal with what I think the answer to that is today. It's not a complicated answer. Certainly for those not covered by the salvation of Christ, that day is going to be a day of terror, a day of great fear. The Scripture talks about people who will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them and somehow relieve them from the things that will be happening that would appear to be for their utter destruction. But for those who are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, we just sang it in a hymn, Bold will I stand in that day. Bold because of the rescuing power of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that will bring us through that day and bring us home to be with Christ. Now, 2 Peter 3 does not spell out every detail of the return of Christ. What we have in that doctrine is things you have to put together from different patchwork pieces of other places in the Scripture. First Thessalonians 4, I'll mention a little further along, how that fits in with this, which actually happens before all of this burning up happens. And you take that piece and you take a few other pieces and you can put together what the New Testament is saying, but we certainly don't have every detail of the final day of judgment here when Christ comes. And what, therefore, the part that we have tends to emphasize what sounds like a scorched-earth approach of destruction, and we might miss the fact that it's really reconstruction that God is aiming at in this and that the Christian believer will be secure through all of this. One of the things this passage certainly brings out is a death blow to the idea that people have of the mythical cartoonist's dimension of what the final heaven will be. Oh, how cartoonists love this. You know, we all have wings. We're all angels. We're walking around with a harp wondering when choir practice starts, and that's heaven. Well, not a shred of evidence in the Bible I read builds that picture whatsoever. In fact, I think that's primarily an attempt to mock the biblical heaven, which does not say we will be angels at all. It's not cloud land. It is, in fact, an existence in a place of tremendous beauty, tremendous meaning, and the immediate presence and glory of our God and Savior, all remade as what this passage calls a new heavens and a new earth. Now, as a preliminary to this passage, I want to take a few minutes to say, make a point that isn't actually in the passage itself, but is correct for us to approach the passage. And that is to just describe for you what we think is the Christian view of human history, because there are many different theories of history that people can adopt. One that was quite popular in the late 19th century, the 1890s, moving into the early 20th century, we would call the notion of inevitable human progress. Such great things were happening as the automobile and the airplane were being invented and Great strides were being made in medicine and surgery and human learning that coming along in the early part of the very earliest part of the 20th century, folks thought, wow, humanity's really doing great things. Utopia cannot be too far away as we advance and technology brings us motion pictures that talk and all kinds of things that people thought were just wonders of the age. And yet, as evidence that it was not utopia, I would remind you that you've been told on your national news just this past week that it is now a 100-year anniversary from the time that America first sent troops, armed troops, to Europe to begin to fight what we called World War I. We didn't know it was World War I when we sent the troops because we thought that was what people called the war to end all wars. Well, it sure didn't end all wars, did it? And many went and died, and people had a great awakening. Those who thought in some socialistic way that utopia was coming looked upon a battle like the Battle of Verdun at which a half million casualties, a half million human casualties on both sides were piled up when the corpses were like cordwood. And people began to discover the horrors that the 20th century had bought mustard gas and these things. And, of course, we went on to World War II and the Nazi death camps and everything else. And by mid-century, you couldn't find too many people who thought we were moving onward and upward to a social utopia. That theory died. Well, a second theory of history is, is fairly common, and it is one that says, well, there were these different great civilizations like Egypt, Babylonia, ancient Greece, China civilizations that were highly developed in many ways and even things like mathematics and the study of the stars and so on and medicine and you'd have a cycle where someone like ancient Egypt would develop but then they would reach their pinnacle and somebody else would knock them off and they would develop until somebody else knocked them off so history was a cyclical thing they said well that's a theory some still cling to There's a third theory that says history is kind of like a great clock. If you own a grandfather clock or any clock with a pendulum weights that you have to wind every week and you forget about it, once in a while I forget my grandfather clock and we behold in the front hall it's not ticking because I forgot to wind it. And they say, well, that's history. It's just winding down and winding down and one day there'll be some great catastrophe and it will all collapse. There's another pessimistic view, a fourth one, and that is one that says don't look for meaning in history. History is just a lawless, disordered sequence of random events and you're wrong to try to think it should make any sense at all. Well, none of those four ideas are the Christian view of history. I want to remind you of this, that the biblical view says that history first and foremost is under the sovereign control of God the Creator, Redeemer God. History is regulated by His wisdom and His power and His planning. It is not blind, meaningless chance. It is not humanity trying to build a tower of Babel and and, uh, perfect all things along some human lines. The biblical view takes full account both of the rule of God and the sinfulness of man. It is not ignorant of the fact. That human beings rebel against God and want to be God themselves. But that evil has come into the world and God is working through it and around it in spite of the appearance that evil seems to be winning sometimes. God is on the throne. And Jesus Christ has come forth into history to be like us, to buy us with his blood, to pay the penalty of our sin and then to come Finally, at the end of history with the grand solution to be the great reconciler, to be the great king who he is today, but it's not visible today as he brings together all things in heaven and earth. Second Peter 3 and all the Bible teaches that kind of a view of history. God is in control of it and he's moving towards a, what we would call a consummation that will not be a human event, It will be a supernatural triumph of God. And Romans chapter 8 says that the creation itself is involved in what God is doing. We read in Romans that the creation itself was subjected to frustration because of man's sin, and the creation has been like a woman in childbirth groaning to see the the outcome of what will happen with mankind and human sin at the end of time. So the biblical view of history centers on God providing redemption for sinners who are repentant, but also along with that, redeeming his creation, not just being saved by faith in Christ. That's vitally important. But even our salvation is part of this much larger work that God is doing in all of the creation itself. Well, then, in the second place, if we come to the text itself here, I would bring you this second point that would talk about God's final cleansing judgment upon the cosmos. Again, I say to you, you know, if you're a young person or a child reading this, this can be a scary passage. Verse 10 and following there have some pretty scary sounding things in it. The very idea that, that the elements themselves are going to be purged with a fervent heat and elements and molecular bonds will be dissolved and so on, and the works that are on the earth are exposed. This sounds scary. And it certainly seems to describe a sweeping purge of the physical creation in some means. I used to think about this, you know, I grew up in the nuclear age when we ducked under the school desk for uh, uh, atomic attack drill. I always thought, gee, I hope that desk above my head survives. I don't know how it's going to, but I don't put much faith in it. But it seems in the nuclear age, at least, when you read of some of these things, that you can say, yes, May it sounds like Kim Jong-un really did have long-range missiles and maybe he's got one aimed at Lancaster. Maybe that's how this is going to happen. We're, we're going to lob our missiles at each other until the earth itself is burned up. And I would be kind of frightened when I would read this. And it caused me to think, well, do you mean to tell me that the great wonders of the physical creation that people travel to see on their vacations, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, Yosemite, the Grand Outer Banks, and all these things, are all these things going to be turned into a burned up cinder? Well, I think we are meant to understand here that the aim is not destruction, it is reconstruction, it is remaking and purging and cleansing that which has been so badly harmed by sin. Even the pollution and the harm and the brokenness we have brought to our physical planet is going to be set right. We're told by Peter that this day is going to come like a thief. It's going to come unexpectedly. If you've ever been burglarized, you know that feeling. It never goes away. The one and only minor burglary my wife and I experienced was in seminary 40 years ago. I can still remember the sense of violation, the sense of anger as we came home and someone had gone through our apartment and found a small envelope of grocery cash and some coins we had and some few other things and had robbed us of those things when we weren't there. There was a sense of How would we have reacted if they had broken in when we were there? At least we would have been able to perhaps protect our things. But Scripture says this day is coming like a thief. God has already given us all the warning we need to know that it's coming. And Jesus said no man knows the day and the hour. You should look with with total lack of confidence on anyone who comes with their biblical scheme and says, Well, I know the day. You know, if I take the book of Nehemiah and multiply by pi and divide it by 3.7 and throw in a few passages from Isaiah, I can come up with the day. Walk away, walk away, and keep walking. That person does not know what they're talking about. Jesus said, No man knows the day and the hour, even the sun. He was saying, at least of himself and, and his human incarnation that he wasn't party to that information. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, when people are saying peace and safety, peace and safety, destruction is going to come on them suddenly as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I believe the emphasis needs to fall in this passage on creation being purged, not destroyed, but remade, that the effects of sin would be done away with. Notice the emphasis on exposing human sin at the end of verse 10, the fact that the earth and the works done in it will be exposed, that which is hidden, that which people think is happening deceitfully and nobody knows about it, will be made known, very manifestly made known. There are passages in the Old Testament, many, especially in the book of Isaiah, that we could go to if time allowed today. Just one Isaiah thirteen nine to 10 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It's a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, a day that will make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it, a day when the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light, and the rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Wow, that seems pretty threatening. And Romans 8 says, jumps over in the New Testament to see the linkage between a day like that and the idea that the natural creation is involved with God's judgment upon human sin. Paul wrote there, Romans eight nineteen: The whole creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation itself is subservient to the plan of God's divine salvation for the ages. The J.B. Phillips translation or paraphrase of the New Testament has a most memorable phrase in it in that passage of Romans 8 when Phillips translated and said, creation itself stands on tiptoe to glimpse the children of God coming into their own. The liberation of believers from the tyranny of sin and death brings the liberation of the physical universe from sin's withering curse. And it appears what God is doing is then removing all that is touched by sin, all that is polluted and damaged by sin, to give us a world that is new again, that is Eden, wrought all over again the way it once was before our sin contaminated this world. And we wonder, we naturally wonder, well, what security can we have? What's going to happen to us when this is going on. Well, this is where I say you ought to take a passage like First Thessalonians 4, read it immediately before reading Second Peter 3. I could have done that when I read the Scripture this morning, but if I did that, you would understand that here's a fragment to put alongside this piece that would say to you, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who remain will be caught up with them to meet the Lord and so on. That great promise that we will be the Lord's when he comes, that goes together with this. 2 Peter 2.9 has already assured us that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the ungodly under punishment. He's not going to lose us. He didn't send his son to save us to somehow say, whoops, I, I dropped a few of them into the flames over there. no. We are with Christ. Those who are Christ's are safe at his side when these things are going on. We're not given the details of that, but we may understand who our protector is. We are safe in Christ when this day is coming. But there should be insecurity about this day for the man or woman who is without Christ. Think of a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1 where you can read this, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at among all who believe. The description there is of unbelievers who have rejected Christ and every note of the saving gospel having the door of salvation slammed in their face and locked by the Son of God because their opportunity is gone. The opportunity has been extended centuries. We've already had that emphasis in this text here, that the Lord is giving, patiently giving, the opportunity to respond to Christ. But many will not have him. And they're going to find out in the final day that there's a day when it's too late. The Old Testament prophet Joel chapter 2 describes a mixture with a fearful prediction of the great coming day that also has mixed into it assurance for the believer. Listen to this, Joel 2.31. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Folks, if you're in Christ, you're absolutely secure in this final day. You have nothing to fear. Jesus said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. He will not lose track of you. His census of saved souls is not going to somehow let your name drop off. You can be sure of that. So third and finally, we would consider this point, that this new heaven and new earth becomes what the Bible calls our blessed hope. It's not a scary story of terror meant to give people bad dreams. It's our blessed hope. And here's the final result that it brings about. Revelation 21 is another one of those prophecy passages that comes at the end of the picture, after the new heaven and new earth is accomplished, I read this almost at every funeral. I'm reading this at at, at gravesides many times for people that are grieving. And here's their loved one in a casket about to be lowered into the earth. And I read them what this Christian believer will experience together with us. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and there's no longer any more sea, a place of threat and danger, by the way. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Indeed, I am making everything new. Ladies and gentlemen, do not fall for the cartoon heaven. The final estate of God's people will be a new heaven and a new earth, a renovated creation, better than anything you've got on any home and garden channel station that you watch on TV with all those home remodeling projects. It is not a never, never land of clouds and angels' wings and halos and all that silly stuff. We will not be angels. We will be God's glorified saints in glorified, resurrected bodies. And just as our bodies right now are the imperfect image of that glorious body to come, so our earth right now is the imperfect image of that glorious dwelling that we're going to have. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered into the mind of man. How great this thing is, the Scripture says. We see things in three dimensions. Do you have any concept what it would mean if, if our sight suddenly became five-dimensional? I can't promise you that that's w- what we'll have, but things are going to be that wonderful beyond the limits of what we can know right now. And best of all, we have this promise. Peter says it here in verse 13. This is a place where only righteousness Will dwell. He calls it the home of righteousness and says, uh, Revelation says, Revelation 21, nothing impure will ever enter into it. Folks, not one of you are home yet. One of our members, Henry Hellier, went home. He's in that intermediate heaven of glory with perfected souls who look upon Christ. But we're not home yet come to our home and walk in the front door and see our dining room. It's stacked high with boxes. We're on the gradual plan of moving, the two-month plan that old people need to have. If you're going to move, it takes a long time to get ready. We're going to a different home in Lancaster County. But guess what? When we get there, we won't be home. That will be what you would call a penultimate home, a home one step from the end. We're not home, folks. You may be in the childhood home you grew up in or your grandparents built. You're not home. Your home is a dwelling built as a place of righteousness where your God and Savior will welcome you to look upon his face and look upon glories that you can't even see in beautiful Lancaster County or any place you tro- We were on the coast of Maine a couple weeks ago. We love Maine. I don't know what your favorite place is to go on vacation. But whatever it is, however spectacular you consider it to be, it's not home. It's only a foretaste. We will finally be home when God brings us to his new heaven and new earth, and then the promise of Jesus in Matthew 13 will come true. Then the righteous, you righteous because of the borrowed righteousness of Jesus, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. My home church when I was growing up was a simple Baptist church. In the old building we had, which we later replaced, but uh, when I was quite young, we had an older building with a sign out in front of it, church name in the top, meeting times in the middle, and down at the bottom was kind of a Church motto or creed you might have said, and I I love it. I think of it so often. It said what, what that church essentially believed. If somebody was going by, they could figure out the theology if they understood what was being said. It said the book, the blood, the blessed hope. You know what? I've thought of it many times. There's no more concise summary of all of Christianity than that: the book. God's divine revelation of what is true, the blood, the act of Christ coming to ransom us and be our atonement, the blessed hope, the knowledge that God is in charge of reality. He's taking history to the end that he knows it will reach, it must reach, and he will bring his own to that great goal. And the question is simply, where will you stand? We sang it in the hymn, Bold I will stand in that great day. Really? Is that true for you? Do you know you will stand boldly and know you're safe and know you'll be received not because of your accomplishments or your resume or your family breeding or you've lived in the same house in Lancaster County for 15 generations? None of that will do it. Bold you can stand in that great day if you stand in the borrowed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing could be more important than to know that you will stand with Christ. And what you do with trusting him, calling him your Lord and Savior today, is something that counts forever so that one day you would indeed be among those who hear Jesus the present king of the universe, say this. Come, all you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. Come. I pray, God, you will hear that said and you will rise up and call him blessed. Our Father, the picture of these things is hard for us. It's so different from anything we've ever experienced that we frankly don't believe really that it's ever going to happen. Will you banish that unbelief from us? Cause us to trust in what our minds can barely even imagine that will happen at that great day. How we thank you that the captain and king of history has already come and already made the way home open to us. May there be some here today that would seek him, cling to him, give homage to him as they never have before, that they might stand and look on his face safe and home in that great day. Amen.